1: This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams.
2: Women to Watch. Sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is
1: for those
3: frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change
2: be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams
1: true philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given now women to watch here's your host sue rocco
3: Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women To Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'm Sue Rocco, and we have a really great show for you this evening. My very special guest who will be joining me in just a moment is Vice President for Women and Diverse B2B Marketing at IBM. Her name is Denise Evans. And throughout the show, we're going to be hearing from our weekly watch team um, with our newest member, Carol Weinman, attorney and autism expert. And she's going to be talking about the legal issues around people living with autism. We're also going to hear from Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Jefferson, who, I, excuse me, I believe is going to be t- bringing us information about the importance of exercise for those suffering with diabetes. And we're also going to be joined by Holly Dowling with her uplifting words of empowerment, and she's going to be talking about the soul of a leader. So stay tuned for that throughout the show. And be sure to visit us at womentowatch.net to see our lineup. And reach out to us if you happen to know a woman who is accomplished uh, in her profession and has an interesting story to share. We love to hear from everyone. So right now, I'd like to bring on my guest uh, for this week. Again, her name is Denise Evans, and she is Vice President Women and Diverse B2B Marketing with IBM. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. It's great to have you, and um, I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about you and and your journey. Uh, And I'll mention right at the top that you've been with IBM for 40 years, and that's quite a long time, so I'm sure um, there's been a lot of twists and turns throughout your career. Uh, but I would love to start with your upbringing and your younger years uh, growing up in the Washington, D.C. area. I wonder if you can just talk about um, your aspirations as a young girl.
4: Sure. So I was born in Washington, D.C. at Freedman's Hospital, which later became Howard University Hospital. And my parents in second grade moved me to Prince George's County, Maryland. At that time, there was segregation, and so I grew up in segregated neighborhoods where all the businesses, the neighbors, everything, the government, were all African-Americans. And I went to segregated um, public schools. In fact, my high school was a vocational high school where they where you learn trades such as um, housekeeping, such as... Um, you know, bricklaying, masonry, carpentry, and things like that. So that's sort of my background. Um, I have two brothers that are younger, and I was the oldest. And um, growing up in that environment, the, the good part about that, quite honestly, was that being in a community that looks like you, you never know that there are others that would see you as less than with limited potential. Mm. And I think that was a great way to you know, be self-aware and have self-esteem before going out to the broader world. And, of course, the bad part about it is because under segregation, you had under-resourced schools. So we didn't have college prep courses. We didn't have all of the things that you would see at, at the other schools in the county. Um, but what we did had, have is we had the best teachers because they were black teachers that could not teach at other schools. And, therefore, among them, teachers that taught their subjects had master's degrees and sometimes Ph.D.s. And so we had great teachers in terms of STEM, chemistry, and areas like that. So there's good and bad in everything.
3: Mm-hmm. And, you know, you went on to receive uh, a degree in math and uh, your MBA. Tell me, did were you at a young age interested in math? Did you know right away?
4: Well, I think that, um, no, I didn't know right away. But it's sort of just my inclination. I love playing with puzzles. Um, I loved playing with my brother's toys. I was not much of a doll person. I would wait until, you know, a few days after Christmas when my brothers got tired of their Lincoln Logs or their race car sets. And so I was always drawn to doing things with my hands, to mechanics, numbers, puzzles, basically finding answers to things. And so I think it was natural. My father, though, was, was very good at math and um when he would come but he had horrible handwriting and so when he came home from work he would have me write on the bulletin board you know messages or numbers and tables and so i I had a lot of fun doing that so that's kind of honestly how i came about by math
3: yeah tell me um about your parents and their influence on who you are today and the success that you've seen
4: well, I guess as a baby, I chose the best parents in the world, I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that until later on in life, and you become a parent. Right, Struggle that at is it. true. <laughs> that is true. But um, they were, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked for the um, State Department. He actually worked for the Foreign Service Institute managing the mailroom for the State Department. Um, they were both lifelong learners. I think is the most important part. Lots of books in our house. Mm-hmm. Um, they always encouraged us to, whatever we did, to be the best that we could do, not the best related to others, but put our best to it. They would say that anything worth doing is worth doing well, and if they ask you to mop the floor, it better be the cleanest floor that they have ever seen mop. <laughs> um, and it was very important, education was very important to them. Um, neither of them graduated from college, but. My mom read to us a lot, all the time, and both I and my brothers knew how to read before we went to kindergarten. So I don't know that we really knew how to read because at some point, I think I had just memorized the Dr. Seuss books (laughs) and the (laughs) rhymes, and people thought I was reading, but be that as it may, they just encouraged us all the time. They encouraged us to be good servant citizens. Um, I know now that we were voluntold around the neighborhood, you know, shoveling other people's snow, cutting grass for senior citizens. Um, so we kind of grew up not knowing that everybody didn't volunteer and, and take care of others. They told us about keeping our commitments, being accountable, and um, treasuring our integrity, because the only thing you can take with you to your grave is your name. Mm-hmm. And so just a lot of lessons. Not only did they teach us those lessons, they lived that life. Mm-hmm. They lived that life as well. So.
3: All good, all good lessons. Yeah. You know, I noticed in your bio that you're a lifetime member of the Girl Scouts, and is that I some, am. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you, is that something you you know found in your early years?
4: So, I um, they started a Girl Scout troop. Um, I I first belonged to the Junior Girl Scouts. I guess that would be middle school. So I was a little bit older, but yes, I there was a woman around the corner, um, and she held Girl Scout meetings in her basement. And so when I had a daughter, I um, actually got her into Girl Scouts when she was four years old as a Daisy Girl Scout. And to this day, she's an adult, but we're both lifetime members of the Girl Scouts. So love the organization, um, the learning. Um, the troop was very active. You know, I was exposed to things I never would have been exposed to before. My daughter's troop traveled around the world. And just all the lessons about planning and your work and and um, executing your plan, you know, and responsibility. So,
3: mm. and, yeah. and, and the importance, um, you know, of confidence and self-esteem. I Absolutely. think is at the heart of that organization. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, we're going to take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to. I really want to hear what a typical day is like for you.
2: Now, the women to watch. Health Watch.
3: And now we're gonna be hearing from Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie for our Health Watch, and she's gonna be sharing important
2: information around exercise and diabetes. Thanks Sue, we finally have some nice weather, so get out and move, especially with diabetes. Exercise should be an essential part of your regimen. Recent studies suggest exercise can decrease overall death rates in type one and type two diabetes. Why? Well, aside from keeping your heart healthy by decreasing cholesterol, blood pressure and weight, Exercise improves glucose control, insulin becomes more effective and you have better sugar levels. Exercise also increases breakdown of fat. Even without weight loss, it seems that exercise can improve your cholesterol metabolism. It can also reduce inflammation, which is linked to type two diabetes and the risk for heart disease. The American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association suggest 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week. Walk ride your bike. However, the benefits fade within 48 to 96 hours, so spread it out three to seven days. Don't let two days pass without activity. Daily activity will really maximize insulin action. Now, combined aerobic and resistance training, weights, may be even better than exercise alone in controlling sugars and cholesterol. So let's be reasonable. Start slowly and gradually increase. Sudden exercise, especially if you've been sedentary, can lead to a heart attack. Check with your doctor. And if you take insulin, check your sugars before, during and after the exercise to avoid dangerous drops in your sugar. And you may need to carry some extra dried fruit or a granola bar and be aware that late drops in sugar, even four to eight hours after exercise can occur. Avoid exercise if your sugar is higher than 250 and hydrate lots of fluid before, during and after. Get out and have fun. Thanks, Dr. Ritchie.
3: You're listening to Women To Watch, and I'm joined this evening by Denise Evans. And Denise is the Vice President for Women and Diverse B2B Marketing at IBM. And, you know, Denise, you've had a lot of different leadership roles with this company, being there over 40 years. And uh, while I do want to kind of explore, you know, all the different um, turns and twists that have taken place, I would love to know what a typical day is like for you.
4: So a typical day now in my current job, first let me say what I'm responsible for is um, I both sponsor and I speak at conferences that have as their audience um, Asian, Black, Hispanic, Native American, and women business owners. Okay. And I do the same with women business owners around the world. Mm-hmm. And so um, in this position, I'm mostly getting prepared to speak and to engage with these business owners. 80% of my day is probably the inside internal work, management, budgets, processes, and things like that. But the other 20% is really getting prepared. Um, and, And because I'm in marketing, what I like to do is to make sure that whatever remarks I'm making, whatever presentations I'm making, whatever preparation I'm making for others to speak, that it's tailored to a specific desired outcome for the target audience that's going to be at the conference. And so we do a lot of inside work In terms of trying to understand um, who's in the audience, what level are they at, what's their understanding of the issues, and really tailoring whatever it is that we're doing to speak directly um, to that and to get people to move differently, think differently, act differently after they've heard me or someone else speak
3: Mm, because these are um, while the the audience itself is diverse their industries are diverse as well absolutely yeah so you must have to do quite a bit of research before um, each of these um, speaking
4: well we do as much as we can we will ask so if if it's an organization women's president's organization is one such organization I will ask them the demographics, expect demographics of the participants who have registered for the conference. It doesn't hit the nail on the head, Mm -hmm. but at least it gives me an idea of in the services industry or in the petroleum industry, it's just some idea so that I can can make my comments meaningful and targeted.
3: Right. Now, let me ask you this. Do you, within um, educating your audience, is there always a part um, where you want to inspire them as well? And if so, what is the one message? Uh, that you look to share with them?
4: So now I'm going to talk about technology because my whole purpose in this is to inspire CEOs in today's age, where we have AI, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and other technologies um, to develop their business strategies to leverage those technologies. They don't need to know exactly how the technology works, but they need to know the types of areas where you can leverage it and how you can have your business grow faster, accelerate, do innovative product for your customers. It used to be that with technology, CEOs developed their strategy for their business and then they leveraged the the technology to enable their strategy. Today, artificial intelligence, blockchain, Internet of Things are so far ahead of where we are as businesses that you really need to understand those technologies, and I hope to inspire them to learn more about it so that they can develop their technologies to leverage the technologies that are ahead of them. Because really today, we're sort of in the fourth... The the last age was the age of the industrial, right, Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. We're now in the age of cognitive artificial intelligence and technology, so we need to rethink... The business challenges or societal problems that before we could never dream of solving, today it's possible, and so that's how I talk to them. I also do sometimes talk to women's leadership and diverse leadership. Mm-hmm. So there are different conferences, but there are yep. sometimes I've been asked to inspire people to be leaders and to move beyond what their perceived limits may be.
3: Right. So let me ask you why. Do you believe that we need to have more women in leadership
4: roles? This is generally speaking, because nothing is 100%. But women tend to, tend to have a different leadership style than men. And um, I've, I once heard someone say that men start businesses to make money, women start businesses to do good, to solve problems. If you think about it from that perspective, there's this whole wave going on now where the younger millennials are now trying to have businesses that are called social businesses. These are businesses that solve societal problems, but they're also for profit, which is kind of a wonderful um, merging of nonprofit aspirations along with making money. And you'll find many women who are at the forefront of these types of businesses. But it's also important because young women can aspire to what they see. And that's true for all role models, right? If you can see it, you can believe it. And we need more and more people closer to the top in order to reach back and pull up. So it's just very important.
3: Right. Um, in I know that you do some mentoring as well um, with young women. And I'm wondering if you think they have an advantage today um, in their leadership pursuits because of, all of the programs, like the ones you're involved in and shows like ours and all of the networking groups, et cetera?
4: Oh, absolutely. No question about it. I mean, none of this existed when I was coming up in the corporation. And I think that the biggest challenge is there's so much out there. How do you filter through it? And how do you make sure that every young girl or every young woman knows what's available so that they can select programs like yours and other programs and and mentors that are around the country and around the world so absolutely yeah it's a great time to be a young woman
3: it is it is um, listen we're going to go into another break we'll be right back with denise evans
2: now the women to watch legal watch
3: carol wyman our attorney in legal watch and she's going to be talking about why we're seeing more arrests
1: around cases and people with autism thank you susan and i'm really thrilled to be here today For those of you listening who are tuned in to the world of autism, you may be all too familiar with the stories about these individuals as victims of bullying, teasing, blaming, and finger pointing. And while that's an important issue, I believe that fewer of us know nor even have the compassion for the many adolescents and young adults with autism spectrum disorder who find themselves on the other side of the law. That's as the so-called perpetrators of crime. Our prisons are filled with individuals on the spectrum. And my phone's ringing off the hook from the parents panicked as their child is handcuffed, arrested, and charged with a criminal offense. So why is this of special concern, earning national attention these days? Because we're seeing more and more cases like this creating a growing need for us to understand why. Autism is in the news every day, and much emphasis is on possible treatments and causes. Yet, I believe we need also to focus on what I see as the too often tragic fallout for many of those with this disorder due to a lack of understanding and a lack of awareness. The clients Susan and I represent often don't even know that what they were allegedly doing is criminal in nature, and nor is it their intent to cause any harm. So if someone you know with autism is arrested, or you're the parent of a child with autism who gets arrested, please have them call our office because that defendant must be handled differently from a more typical criminal defendant.
3: 215- Two three 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 one seven seven. That's MSJACAD.org or two one five two three 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 one seven seven. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley-Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's F H B A I R D dot com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610 238 6636. That's 610 238 6636. Welcome back. I'm having a conversation with Denise Evans, the Vice President for Women and Diverse B2B Marketing at IBM. And, uh, Denise, you've been at IBM for 40 years. And it's interesting, when I was thinking about this interview today and you and, and some of the other women I've had on the show, I don't know that I've interviewed many that have been in one, uh, with one company for that long period of time. So I would imagine you have great insight into how things have changed there and what opportunities um, have now come about for women. Wonder if you can just share a little bit about your insights and in the positive progress that you've seen with
4: your time there. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, actually, IBM is a great company. Honestly, it's a great company for diversity. IBM hired its first women in 1899. They hired their first, um, promoted the first female executive in 1940. Um, hired the first dis- disabled employees and gave them accommodations 77 years before the Americans with Disabilities Act. IBM has always wanted to hire the best and brightest, and I believe that our chairman, um, our initial chairman, just was a renaissance guy, that he just believed in his heart that if I want the best and brightest, and I believe that, that um, the best and brightest are equally distributed, among everyone, regardless of your sex or your religion or your race, that I think he believed that. And so IBM has always been an inclusive and diverse company and, of course, grown more so over time. So, number one, I lucked into a company that really embraced that, embraced me for my skills and not what I look like, quite honestly. Mm. The second part I want to say about IBM is that... um, great training. Um, it's all, it was all about the employee training you for leadership, management, you know, beyond just technology. They trained you in every aspect of being a good corporate citizen. Um, many programs where you can work with um, on behalf of IBM and your community. So, It's just a very, very good company to, to, to rise up in. The, second, the third part is that I lucked into a technology company. It was purely by luck that I started with IBM or by opportunity. Because if I had gone into maybe the steel industry or something else, I probably wouldn't still be here. Yes. But
3: in- you, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Can you share with us the story? Of how, how did you get uh, your, that first job with IBM?
4: So, you know, for, for, for the young women, um, I always say that luck is opportunity meets preparation. <clears throat> we talked about the fact that I love the sciences. I love math and things like that. But I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a PhD. I didn't want to be a. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to teach. They didn't know what I could do. And so I walked into, um, I was at Brown University. I walked into the alumni office, and they had a program called externships, where a Brown alum could let you shadow them at work during your spring break. You know, no salary, no job, or anything like that, just shadow them. And the person that picked my name was Carl Thompson, who was a systems engineer at IBM in D.C., and that's where it all started. Mm. Uh, by the end of the week, I had a summer job offer, and at the end of that, when I was going off to, um, I had two years between undergraduate and business school. Um, and they they have me; they gave me a full time job, and I had the audacity to ask for a job on the West Coast, which they flew me out, and <laughs> housed me, and got me started there. So that's how it started.
3: So, is there someone? Um you know, you took that initiative, right, to mm-hmm. seek out that, that internship, which I think is always key to opening up opportunities. Was there someone in your career uh, or personal life who has believed in you that has helped with your confidence?
4: Sure, and both. And so, you know, I talked about my parents, but I also want to talk about my community and my extended family, teachers. Um, In specific, one teacher at the school, when they tried to desegregate our schools in the 10th and 12th grades, it didn't work really well. But there was one young teacher that came, white male, um, who had been in the Peace Corps. And when he got to the school, he thought that I and three other people, including my now husband and boyfriend, had the potential to get into any school we applied to. He encouraged us to apply to the Ivy Leagues, and we did. We all four of us got in, and I think that really changed my trajectory because if I had gone to some of the lesser-known schools, right, then I would have had a different trajectory than the trajectory um, of going to Brown and graduating from Brown. From Brown, I had a deferred at Harvard Business School, which meant I needed to work for two years before coming back to join the class two years out, and that's when I asked IBM for full-time employment on the West Coast, and I did that for two years. I love the West Coast, and so I ended up going to Stanford Business School instead of Harvard because of the palm trees and the <laughs> <Yeah>. warm weather.
3: <laughs> Once you're there, it's hard to... <laughs> Once you're there, you're there,
4: and That's it's not, right. a bad, not a bad choice. They were both number one and two in the country, so it really didn't matter. So Yes. Absolutely. Op- opportunity and luck means everything. And I think Max, um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book, Tipping Point. A lot of it has to do with that. But you have to be prepared for your luck when the opportunity comes around. That's
3: right. So, you know, you have steadily um, grown with, with IBM and, and continually secured leadership positions. Can you talk about something that is a challenge for you, um, you know, in the work that you do? What is something that you personally have to work on, uh, on yourself? Or, or perhaps something that you've overcome?
4: Actually, I I don't know how to answer that question because I see challenges as opportunities. And whenever there's a stumbling block or it's just an opportunity for me to do something different. So I'm not sure that there are challenges that I can't overcome overcome so many. But um, I think that as long as you're doing the right things for the right reason, right, and it's a win-win, I think that's when your values come in, right? So if you... um, you really believe it's the right thing for the client and the right thing for IBM, then with tenacity and perseverance, you can find the right people to help you during a difficult situation. I think that's the mark of IBM.
3: Mm. How about, is there? do you have a personal mantra? You know, there we can always wake up with all the uh, well-laid plans <laughs> and inevitably something, you know, doesn't go the, our way. And what do you do, you know, at those moments when when things are... And you wear a lot of hats, I should mention. You serve on multiple boards um, and, and you're in your role with IBM and you're speaking and... There's stressful moments when, you know, everything gets a little bit too much. How do you get through those moments?
4: So, again, I'm lucky. I'm blessed. I have the genetics, and I grew up in a drama-free household. Mm -hmm. And so I have this ability to be very focused. And in moments of crisis, I'm at my best. It's something I'm born with. It was something that was nurtured in our household because you never gave up. And no matter how bad it was, if you would just calm yourself down, you could work your way through it. You may not be successful, but you'll work your way through it. And so it's just a talent that I have in moments of crisis. That's when I'm at my best, Um, and it's just what I do. And I I say it's both the genetics as well as the way I was nurtured at home.
3: That's a wonderful gift to have.
4: I also have the ability to calm myself. Okay. So I, I look at it as sort of, in being in the eye of the storm, I have the ability to see very clearly and be very still.
3: Mm, that's wonderful. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how we can encourage young women uh, to pursue STEM. But first, going into the break, we're going to hear from Holly Dowling for our Leadership Watch, and Holly's going to be talking to us today about the Soul of a Leader.
5: Hi, Holly Dowling here for your weekly inspiration for the Leadership Watch. And today it's about the soul of leadership. And I'm really passionate about this. And here's where this comes from. Working with leaders around the world as a global leadership influencer, I have found that what people are needing the most and what they need from you is to focus on them as human beings and stop treating your people as knowledge banks. So let me reverse that. Stop treating people as knowledge banks. and Look at them as human beings. That is the soul of leadership. And having interviewed thousands, and I mean thousands of people around the world, I can also tell you that people ask all the, all the time, what's the definition of engagement? I want to engage my teams. I want to drive engagement. And I always say, after all the work around the world, you want to know what they need from you? It's three things. The definition of engagement today at the Soul of Leadership know me, care about me, and pay attention to me. And if you can gather that as the Soul of Leadership, treat people as human beings and not knowledge banks, and know what they need from you the most, know me, care about me, and pay attention to me. And those three things, my friends, can make the world of difference the minute. You can make that shift and put on a new pair of glasses and it's as simple as starting to have conversations and listen to people because when you truly ask and you're willing to listen being listened to feels as close to being loved and that is the soul of leadership pay attention to me care about me and know me and that is your inspiration today for your leadership watch, please reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you at hollydowling.com.
3: Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley-Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more, that's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust Call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women To Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm talking with Denise Evans, Vice President of Women and Diverse B2B Marketing for IBM. And, you know, one of the topics we talk about often on the show, Denise, is how to get more young women to pursue uh, fields in STEM, which traditionally have been male uh, jobs, and we're talking about science, technology, engineering, and math. And I guess what I'd love to hear from you is just what kind of messaging do you give to young women when you have the opportunity to say to them, if this is your interest and your gifts, you know, the world needs you.
4: So there are the numbers behind that, why the world needs you, right? And so I can always talk to the numbers where there there's so many jobs that, that are going undone, right? So we need as many people as we can in that area, especially corporations. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of it, my personal opinion is that it starts very young. We have to make sure that girls that have these natural abilities aren't talked out of it. And that has to do with media, it has to do with family and others. In my life, my father told me I could do anything I wanted to do, and he encouraged me, no matter how female or male it was, mm. right? Yes. We don't have enough messaging in the media, TV shows, even the gaming industry. They all have girls thinking that you have to comport to a stereotype. So. As much as we can have role models, programs like yours so they can hear from women leaders in all different aspects of STEM, um, I think it's important for young people to read, read, and read more, read books about the history of women around the world, by the way, right, as well as women in STEM. It's, it's, we've been in STEM forever. In other words, it's important for them to know they're not alone, right? And they're not an anomaly, and to make sure they hold on to their natural attributes, even though others may tell you that you shouldn't be good at math, or you shouldn't be good at this, or you shouldn't do that. So it's really protecting them through those tender ages, um, just as they're going into middle school. That's when most girls drop out of STEM. Mm. In fact, I was part of a study um, many years ago, and it looked at the attrition of girls and women in STEM, and there's steep drop-offs from between middle school and high school, then those that do graduate high school with an interest, there's a big drop off between those that pursue, continue to pursue STEM and college versus going into the liberal arts, right? And then even still, when they go between undergraduate to their PhDs into the workforce, there's a larger dropout. So it's all around issues of what women, are comported to be they should know that you can you can have it all maybe not at the same time but you can and companies need to have policies and practices that assist women in maintaining their roles in the sciences once they join the company
3: you know I think too you mentioned the media and the messaging Um, I think the good news is you know people are speaking out about these topics, so that young girls are getting this positive messaging, and I would say too that in the, the teachers, I think the way they present these fields, and particularly to absolutely. young girls, right? Mm-hmm. It's I think of myself growing up and not having mm-hmm. an interest in science and technology, and but now as an adult, it's so incredibly exciting.
1: And oh, so, absolutely. Right?
3: Yeah, I think how it's presented to girls, the, the excitement around it really um, is helpful coming from I, the teachers.
4: I absolutely agree. And not only the way and that's throughout any subject in school these days. That's we have to right. have more imagination and how we present it. Um, we also need to go beyond us as consumers and learn how to build, right? we all play video games, we all play things like that, but too often the focus is on using technology, your iPhones, whatever it is you're using, mm. but you don't also accompany it with, Well how was this made? How was this video game made? What mm. do what do um, gamers do that make games, you know? And actually one of the gaming companies is headed by the president and CEO is a woman, which is really, really very interesting. So Yes, I think this program is very helpful. There's a there's so much out there now, so I guess what I I lay awake at night wondering is how do we get the messaging to every little girl out there?
3: Right. Honestly. Yes. 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 Um, you know, what do you say to folks who who have a little bit of a concern and a worry about where we're going as a culture with AI um, and you know, there's, there's talk about whether certain technologies are going to take over jobs for, for humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this, really, there's this conflict, uh, you know, with innovation and, and moving forward, and how much is too much?
4: Excellent question. So first of all, yes, there is a conflict, but it's going to happen. And so I always say the best defense is offense, right? So now is the time to start putting yourself in a position that will still be needed for humans to perform versus the ones that are easily replaceable by machines. So there are two aspects to artificial intelligence. One is the infusing of intelligence and robots to do very tedious, you know, monotonous type tasks, mm. like picking boxes from a warehouse, right, like building things on a, a line, um, just tedious things. So those types of jobs are going away. However, artificial intelligence is meant to augment human intelligence. If you think about it, let's say if I'm a lawyer, if I'm spending 90% of my time digging through law books and trying to find law and look at whatever else is going on, I'm spending very little of my time really solving the problem. So what AI will do in that instance, computers are fast, they don't take breaks, they they don't need food, They can do all the research for you so that now the lawyer can spend most of his or her time figuring out strategies to go to trial, how to work the case. So what I'm saying is that um, you want to get more in the knowledge-based industry where robots aren't going to replace humans in terms of making decisions. Mm -hmm. I say that we're not going to have a doctor robot, okay? It's just too much that can go wrong with that. However... You will have doctors that have use of robotic arms to do surgery. You will have doctors that have recommendations from artificial intelligence so that if, if you've got a really specific type of cancer, there's one doctor in the world that knows, you can leverage that information mm. as an average doctor to be as good as the best doctor. But you still have to be a doctor. You still have to perform the surgery. So you just, we just have to think a little bit differently about those jobs where you really need humans to perform that and use our brains to make decisions. Mm,
3: I love that. Um, yes, let the robots do the tedious work and let the humans do the creativity. Absolutely. Yeah, love that. Denise, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be with us and, and share um, your advice and, and a little bit about your story. I appreciate it.
4: And thanks so much for having me.
3: That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'd like to give a quick thank you to our sponsors, Jefferson University Hospital, LaSalle University, Carol Wyman and Holly Dowling for their continued support of our show and our mission. Have a great Fourth of July and stay tuned for next week where we share the real story behind her title